Hello and welcome to Revolution 22's podcast. We are a church from the downtown area of Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today as we listen to God's word from the book of Genesis and the life of Joseph. We pray that the Lord will draw us to him as we find ourselves in the story of God amidst suffering. Well, we've been working through uh, getting ourselves to the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. And what we've done over the last uh, couple weeks is try to give a broad overview of where we are in, this, in the context and the culture and understanding what's happening before we get to the life of Joseph. Next week, we get into the life of Joseph finally. So today, what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to talk about a few other things that would help us hopefully understand what is going on culturally in the context that Joseph actually sets foot on earth. And we started this series with this idea of digging into Genesis, going from chapter 37 to 50, uh, chapter 50, because we believe that God is writing his story and that we will flourish regardless of our circumstances when we find ourselves in his story. And one of the things that we realized as elders as we were praying about this as a church is that, that many of us unintentionally or just over time or intentionally have kind of just avoided most of the Old Testament because of the seeming ambiguity or the lack of clarity that we have when reading it. And honestly, sometimes when you look at this stuff, you're like, why are they doing this? And how is this? This doesn't make sense. What, what, is, what is happening here? And so what I wanted to do today is it's actually going to be a day that's a little bit application light. I said this first service and someone came up afterwards and was like, well, I was like, man, this can be really boring today, huh? And so we well, are welcome for that. But um, this is... Uh, this is important, I think, because when we look at how God works at redeeming people and, and telling his story and continuing to move his promises forward through history, it's important for us to see and understand specifically some of the cultural context in that. So today what we're going to do is we're just going to talk about a few of the things that I think are helpful for us to understand when looking at the story of God so that when we get into the life of Joseph and we start talking about some of these things, it will help us get there. And so that's, that's what we're going to do today. We're going to kind of, I geeked out over this over the last few weeks, and so you're just going to get some of that stuff. So you're welcome, or I'm sorry, whichever way you see that. Um, the first one is this, is this term patriarchal. Now, I know for a fact that that is a four-letter word today and that that has all sorts of struggles with it. What I want to do real quickly is, is, is tell you when I say this what I'm talking about. First off, this has to do with the centrality of the oldest living male member of the family to the structure of the larger society. That's what this is. Now, a couple things I want to be clear with. Uh, this is, by and large, ancient Near East was a tribal people, not a bureaucratic people. And so when I talk about uh, this system, this structure that was in there, this isn't God's commanded structure. This is just the structure and the system with which they lived in and God worked his purposes through. Uh, one scholar says it this way, God did not canonize Israel's culture. Rather, he simply used the culture as the vehicle through which to communicate the eternal truth of his character and his will for humanity. When we talk about this, we aren't talking about male headship or how Israel is run. We would look at other scriptures entirely to talk and work through that. So that's not what we're doing here. This is just helping us understand the culture with, it, with which Joseph would have been born into so that we can understand how God is working a little bit better 
in that way. And so that's why we're doing this in this way. Uh, Israel was a tribal society. And tribal society, by and large, means that, that the family is literally the axis at which everything functions around it. So the family is the link to economic and legal structures. The family is the one that brings about that. And it's just, um, and it's through the family. Now, for us, when we read into the Old Testament, we read into it from a bureaucratic society where we recognize that the state kind of supplies the, uh, or creates economic opportunities or enforces laws or cares for the marginalized. And that's what we take our lens and look into in this time. Again, hear me on this. This is not a perfect system. All systems are flawed after the garden, okay? Every single one of them are flawed. There is no perfect system in, in, in what with which or culture with which we live in. However, this helps us understand some of what's happening with the people that God is using in his story. Uh, in, a, in the bureaucratic society, the family is usually peripheral to econ- economy and, and government. Again, the patriarch was responsible for the well-being, the economic well-being of the family. He enforced the law. He had responsibility to care for his own, um, who, who became marginalized through poverty or death or war. It was on the household for that person to do that, the, the patriarch to do so. In Israelite society, the basic household was the father's household. It consisted of the patriarch, which would have included his wife and sometimes wives, which we'll talk more about that next time, Um, his unwed children, his married sons, and their wives as well. What would happen in this society is if I were to give my daughter into marriage, Ava would go and live with her husband and her husband's family on the same place in the same land. There would have been a courtyard. There would have been uh, a housing for them and everything would have kind of happened in this way. And that's how they operated. And now Ava would then be the responsibility of this household, no longer my household. And this is the structure. This is the system. This is kind of the, the way that the people moved around in ancient Near East during this time. And God had all kinds of laws in Leviticus and Deuteronomy on how to, to do this well so that people could still thrive in regards to living out God's purposes. There were all kinds of protections, and most of the laws were to protect the marginalized of people, widows, orphans, people that would have been, had they, their husband died, they would have been cast out, not had any way to get an inheritance. This is the, the, the laws that they put were to try and create safety and, and connection within the familial unit there. Um, again, there's bad things about it, and there's some good things about it. We, uh, we are not trying to uh, say that this is the way it has to be. This is just so we can understand a little bit more of when we read through the story of God, why these things are happening this specific way. Again, we look at um, when it comes to, to roles or how we value and see every other human, regardless of culture or system at play. There's many scriptures that talk about that. That's not what we're diving into today. Uh, one scholar said it this way, when thinking about the tribal society, he said, in Israel's tribal society, redemption was the act of the patriarch who put his own resources on the line to ransom a family member who had been driven to the margins or society by poverty, who had been seized by an enemy against whom he had no defense, who found themselves enslaved by the consequences of a faithless life. So God uses this language and this system and presents himself as the patriarch of the clan, bringing back, announcing his intent to redeem the lost children back into his home. Uh, I said it this way last week, Father God is buying back his lost children by sending his eldest son, his heir, to give his life as a ransom for many, Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. 
so that we, the alienated, might be adopted as sons and daughters and share forever in the inheritance of the firstborn of all creation. So in this system, they would trace all of their ancestral descent down. And by family, by family, the inheritance would work its way through this system. This is how they functioned as a people in this time. Historically, we can see that the father's house could include as many as three generations, sometimes up to 30 people. And then when they couldn't sustain that anymore, they would, they would make a commitment to say, okay, hey, we're going we're gonna to divide. And we see this, we can see this whole thing play out really in Abraham's life. We see that he, um, Abraham's brother, Terah dies, and then Lot now, because Abraham's the oldest brother, um, Ter- um, Lot now becomes underneath Abraham in his care. And so Abraham now is the one that, that cares for, for Lot. Their families were too big to stay in one place. And so that's where you see them say, hey, let's go to different spots. But when Lot gets in trouble, Abraham as the patriarch is on the hook, is the one that's in care, like in place to come and care for Lot. So this is what's playing out over and over and over again. Again, we're, we're to look at it critically. It's not perfect. Every system is broken. Every culture is broken post the garden. No good system. But in this way, it helps us when we look at how Joseph and his brothers interact and Jacob in the story to understand that this dynamic is at play in the family and how they care for each other. It helps us see that. Another thing that's important for us is the value of the firstborn that we see all throughout Scripture. The firstborn had unique rights, responsibilities, and privileges. Um, the firstborn male child was given the priority and the preeminence in the family um, and the best of the inheritance. We see that the firstborn was, uh, male was important because he was believed to represent the prime of human strength and vitality as the opener of the womb. This was all in play in this time. As a result, the firstborn son became the primary heir of the house and always deserved a double portion of inheritance. These are things that are important for us to understand because when we get to Joseph and, and when, when Israel goes to bless his two sons, he switches his hands and he brings them in. He's ultimately saying, I'm giving Reuben the firstborn's blessing to them. This is all stuff that helps us understand what's happening in the story of God. And the reason why the firstborn would get the double inheritance is because when, when, when dad passed on, the firstborn now had to take the role of caring for the rest of the tribal family, the clan. So this is what's happening when you see all of these things happen. We can, we can see this play out in, um, in, in Boaz and, and Ruth, where Ruth is, is with Naomi, and she doesn't have an inheritance. And so it's a whole story if you go look through it in Ruth. And she's like, I don't know what to do. And they go into their land, and Boaz says, I will redeem her. What is he doing? He says, I will bring her into my family. I will marry her. I will give her an inheritance. I will bring about children for her. But even before she does that, there's a next of kin that's closer than, than Boaz. It has to like say, no, I don't want this birthright. I don't, want to, I don't want to be the one to redeem Ruth because it'll affect the inheritance within my family lineage, so I'm not going to do it. So then Boaz does this. So all of these things that we see playing are part of what ancient Near East just did. And God is, has, it has chosen during this time, during this structure, not because he commanded this structure, but to work out and help us understand what he's doing in redeeming a people. And so we can see this all over. Firstborn humans and animals were considered sacred to God. After God rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt, he commanded them uh, to the people to consecrate every firstborn male human and firstborn animal to him. That's Exodus chapter 22. 
and then the dedication was in memory of God's great deliverance and the sign to their children that God had brought them out of Egypt, Exodus 13, 11. This structure will help us, it kind of fences us in and helps us have language to use and talk about when we get to Joseph. So, so thank you for enduring that with me a little bit there. Another thing that I think is really, really important for us to understand when we get to this is as we last week went through God keeping his promise through covenantal language all the way through time to bring us to Jesus and to, to ultimately where we now sit in the new covenant as, as children, as the seed of Abraham, as the offspring, as the promised child of Isaac. Like we see that. One of the things that happens is when you come to the scriptures and you start looking at people, we have kind of two, two propensities, two issues or two, two kind of viewpoints. Very often, and I don't know if you're like me, but very often I feel like you can, you can tend to idolize people in here. You can look at them and be like, man, they're just, they're amazing. And you can almost retroactively like read back and how, look at amazing and how powerful and how much faith they have in such an atrocious time. I don't know how they ever did it. Like, like even look at Ruth's story. It's like, how does she, how does she have so much faith? And how does she do that? It's incredible. And we can tend to idolize them. Well, that's also, I think, something that we do today. And unfortunately, we can see like if Kyle and Diane are leading worse and they're doing a really great job, we can unintentionally start idolizing Kyle and Diane doing it as opposed to recognizing that it's the spirit of God in them, even enabling them to do so. And so sometimes we can look at these people in the Bible and go, man, they're just amazing people and they're incredible. And we can kind of read in like, I can't believe they did that. And their faith seems so powerful and so incredible. But more often what happens is we look at it. If you're anything like me, you look at the people in the Bible and you're like, what, them? Those people? How, how in the world did these people, they, did they become a part of God's story? Like, I, I find myself very often um, judging them, like even the, the people of Israel. I'm like, man, you had, you had a God literally in the form of a pillar by night, or, or flame by day, and pillar during the day, or sorry, flame by night, pillar during the day, and, and they still lost sight of him. And I can find myself reading it and being like, oh, you little Israelites, I would do so much better. But we, we know the, the truth. We talked about this last week, that, that every single one of us has fallen and broken. But what's really hard is that when we, when we try to look at the individuals that God is using to carry his story forward, and this is why we said at the very first week, it's important for us to remember that this story is ultimately about God, not us, is that we can try and make ourselves that person, I want to be like this person. I want to do like this. And it's not that that's wrong, but ultimately the story isn't about that person. It's what God is doing in and through them. But when we look at these people, we realize like, man, these people are messed up. And so what I wanted to do real quickly is just share with you a few of the mistakes, a few of the struggles that the, that the promises of God people came through. We went through a list of the covenants last week, and so I'm just going to hit those people, but I would encourage you to go back and read it. But I think this is really, really important for us because if we, if we don't recognize this, I think we miss what God is doing ultimately in our story with him and what he's doing in and through us. And so, so Noah, as we talked about last week, where the, the, the covenant to Noah and first interaction of God coming back with relationship with God. And Noah, by all intents and purposes, before the flood is deemed a righteous person. He's deemed righteous. We don't, we don't know much. He was very faithful. He built a, a huge ark for a very, very long time, despite probably ridicule and, and a lot of other confusion in his life. And he, he did this. And then 
just after he's off the, the, the boat, off the flood, he's, he's finally enjoying dry land again. And, and, and out in this place, he plants a vineyard. And it's like, oh, he's, he's gardening. This is awesome. He's cultivating. And, and as soon as that vineyard is, is ready, he makes wine and gets plastered drunk and just gets wasted drunk. Like that's, and again, one could obviously just emotionally say, I think if I was on a boat that long with just my family, I'd probably do it too. But like, I love my family, but let's be honest, you know, it'd be hard. So what, I mean, it's hard to blame him for that, really. But either way, he does this, and then it says he's, he's, he gets in his tent nakedness. And that, that term that's used in Genesis, it's not that he was just naked. There was something unethical, something not moral about what he did in just that, that posture beyond just getting drunk. And then his, one of his sons, Ham, comes in the tent, and that something really terrible happens there. And so this is the first person that God establishes re-relationship with is Noah. And then we get to Abraham, and we all sing about Abraham. We're all, you know, I have many sons, right? And we're all one of them. We all know this. And Abraham, by all intents and purposes, he's the father of faith. In fact, we look at Abraham's life, God tells him to leave his land. He's not even a, he's not even someone that's following God. He's a, a pagan. And God says, follow me into a land of what you're doing. And he does it. And God trusts him, or he sees, or Abraham trusts him, and God counts it to him as righteousness. And so it's like, yeah, Abraham, finally, okay, this is the person that gets it together. And then Abraham, in his drillings and, and, and moving around, and as he's going to his places, twice, not once, but twice, and the, the, the twice one always messes with my head. He, he, he says, out of fear of his life, says that his wife, Sarah, who is very beautiful, is his sister, not his wife. And so she gives her to, to, these, to these kings to be their wife, and God has to intervene and protect Sarah. But I don't know about you. I, I could see one time happening. I'm not sure that Jen would let it happen a second time. Like, how did that, how did, how do you get like, wait, 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 hang on. Remember last time? No, like, totally forgot. The, the father of faith, twice. And then we're like, oh, well, Sarah, I mean, she's, you know, she's great. And yeah, maybe she laughed at God with the promise of children because of her, her age and when it was going to come. But, but I think we forget over Sarah's grief of infertility, she, she pushes to give her servant Hagar to Abraham to bring an heir for them, for them. And then Hagar has a child, and Sarah gets really jealous and angry and starts treating Hagar horribly. And the whole time, the whole time, Abraham just seemingly is passive in this thing. This is, the, this is our father of faith. This is the one whom seed that we're all looking for, that we're watching for, to, that is going to come and bring us the, the, the blessing for all people through Jesus Christ. Abraham's that person. Then we get to Isaac, and I only bring up Isaac only because we'll talk a little bit more about him next week, but Isaac is, is Abraham's child of promise, which means we're the, the child of promise through him in Galatians 3. We see that. It's, it's wonderful. But Isaac does the exact same thing that dad did with his wife. She's my sister. Now, again, once, maybe twice. Why in the, I mean, this is just insane. And again, God has to intervene to protect. These are our faithful people. Then there's Moses. Moses has a temper, a really big temper. And one could argue that his temper is is justified when he kills the Egyptian person, but it's still murder. And, and God speaks very clearly that murder is not of his plan. And, God, and Moses kills the Egyptian person and then flees and runs 
And then God, you know, through a number of different things in the burning bush, has a conversation, commissions Moses to do the exodus that we all know so well. And, and Moses over and over and over again in his ministry, in his walking and leading the people of God, he just, his, his temper gets the best of him. He gets angry. You know, I, although I, I can understand for sure how he could get frustrated as dealing with God's people can be so very frustrating at times. Or so I've heard from other pastors. Um, I don't know about it, but I, I've heard, I hear it is. He gets so frustrated. He, he continues to go to his temper. Then we get to Jacob or Israel, who is Joseph's father. Jacob's position literally is found by cheating his brother out of the firstborn inheritance. He cheats him for a, a stew. Now, we can argue Esau shouldn't have been thinking with his stomach, but, but either way, he cheats him out. And then, and then to get the blessing, he actually, his, his name, Jacob, means deceiver. He actually deceives his blind old dad into believing that he's Esau to get the blessing of Esau. This is, this is Joseph's dad. Jacob also has uh, four wives, only loves one. We're going to, again, we'll talk about that next week. Uh, Jacob's daughter, Dina, is raped by a pagan, Shechem, who says he wants to marry her. And um, Simeon and Levi, her brothers, are, are absolutely angered by this, and they respond by massacring all of the men of Shechem's town. And Jacob seems to be mad, but here's, here's the thing about Jacob that's really interesting to me. He's not mad about the atrocious things that happened to his daughter, Dina, which is sad, horrible. He's not mad about the fact that his son's committed murder, which is sad and horrible. He's, he's, he's mad because he's worried about the relationship that him and his tribe will have with other tribes. Jacob's oldest son, Reuben, can't resist his desires for one of Jacob's wives and sleeps with his sibling's mother. All of Jacob's sons, 10 of them, don't like Joseph, which we'll talk more about next time. And so they contemplate murdering and Reuben, who's like, no, 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 let's, let's, uh, let's save him. He says, let's sell him. We can make some money on this. And then they sell him off to slavery. And for 22 years, they hold that lie to their dad until Joseph reestablishes it with them in Genesis 37, exposes them. David, King David, who the lines coming through, the King David himself, he literally breaks half of the Ten Commandments in like one week. He lies, he steals another person's wife, he covets his wife, he commits murder. Judah, the, the line where the scepter shall not be depart, the line of Judah, the one that we know that the king, the Messiah, will come. Judah, in it, as a widow, apparently frequented prostitutes, often enough that Tamar, who was supposed to get her inheritance, who was, who was brought in and cared for under the patriarch, was supposed to have a family and, and the blessing of children, wasn't getting it because he didn't want one, of his, one more of his sons to potentially die. So she goes and dresses up as a prostitute and tricks him into sleeping with her, and he does. She gets pregnant. This is, and this is the line that, that, that our King Jesus comes out on. These are the people that last week we talked about, the brilliant promise of God and how he moves things along and going forward in time. How can God allow such horrible people to do such horrible atrocities and then still have that be a part of his plan? Still use that. Doesn't that, like that just, like all week long, that was just like 
festering in me. Like, how could you, how could you do this, God? Like, there's, there's got to be a better way. I mean, maybe, maybe not like perfect people. We know that that's true. I understand sin is fallen, but, but how in the world, how in the world can these be the people that we call spiritual giants? These are the ones that most of these names are in the, the, the by faith, our pillars of faith chapter in Hebrews 11. And as I, as I sat in that question and I wrestled with it and fully aware that we know this side of the fall, like we're all born into sin and we're, our, our, we, we just tend to go this way. But as I wrestled with this question, I kept remembering this question, like kept bringing something to mind. I was like, what is it? It's reminding me of something else in scripture. What, what is it? What is it? What is it? And I was, I was, I felt like, just, just so you guys can know, I felt like I was like this detective looking for a validation to my question. And it wasn't that at all. In fact, God took me to another scripture that reminded me just how broken and, and a mistake and a failure I can be. See, Jesus tells this parable, and this is what this question of how can a good God use such horrible people, horrible systems, these atrocities to continue to do these things. How? How could it do it? And it reminded me of this parable that Jesus told. God finally brought it to memory, and I was like, oh, yeah, this is it. And, oh, it wasn't validate, validating my feelings. I realized very quickly who I was in this parable. Uh, Jesus, speaking in Luke 18, verses 9 through 14, tells this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Jesus says this, he says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, not like Noah or David or Abraham or those darn Israelites. I thank you that I'm not like one of them or even this tax collector right here. I mean, I would love to make fun of the Pharisee that Jesus is personifying in this parable, but we know too well that I'm totally that guy. I can totally sit there and be like, I've got it figured out. I'm more loving. I'm more faithful. I, 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 I. It goes on, or even like this tax collector. And then he, he, he goes to God with his, with his pedigree. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Okay, first off, how many of us can even say that? Then the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beating his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. See, what I, I realized is when I sit here and condemn God or condemn the scriptures for the absolute atrocities that we see happening here, I'm no different than that Pharisee. I'm no different than that person standing in my little high horse saying, look at how good I am, comparing my holiness in some way or my, my good deeds, which, which Isaiah would tell us are filthy rags apart from God. I'm holding those as if they're greater than someone else's. And, and we all do this. We come to, in fact, this is one of the reasons why I believe in the validity of Scripture. Because, man, if you were going to sell something, you might as well keep all this garbage out. Because it really doesn't paint a good picture. But it's because it's not about the people. 
It's about the God of the people. And what we see here is we see that God is always using people, his people, to bring about his purposes in his timing for his glory alone. And this, this should be a moment of, like of, of exhale for us. Like, oh, thank you, God. When we come across people like David and we see just that carnal sin, that moment of just complete disregard of everything that is good, and recognize that God isn't done with him in that moment. God is going to humble him, like he says here, but that God is going to continue to work out his purposes in and through him. That should cause us to go, oh, thank you, God, there's hope for me. There's hope for me. Now, if it doesn't, then we might be that person standing there saying, I'm so glad I, I, I am not like one of them. And it's important for us when we look at the story of God, when we, when we come to this understanding of Joseph to, to, to not take any of these characters and, and demonize them as, as less than us or hold them in higher high regard as if they are holier than thou. Like, these are, these are broken people. God doesn't, he doesn't really do his work through the firstborn, even though that's the system that they're a part of. You almost always see him going to a younger brother. He doesn't look to the self-reliant or the obviously strong. We see that he says when, he, when choosing jo- David, he says, I don't look at the outside, I look at the heart. Which is interesting. If you think about it, God is looking at the heart of this little shepherd boy who knows exactly what he's going to do and continues to use him for his purposes and his glory. See, God doesn't, God doesn't seem to be stopped by our own brokenness or sinfulness or the sinfulness or brokenness of others. He continues to press his promises forward, which is what we talked about last week. We should be so grateful to recognize that adulterous people, multiple wives, murderous, selfish people, cowards, that all of these people are, are, are able to be used for the story of God for his glory are welcomed into his kingdom, not based on their works or their efforts, but on the faith that he gives them to us. The people that God uses are deeply broken. So then why would we be so afraid to both share and expose our own brokenness? When we see this here, I doubt any of you are having a book written about your life, where for the rest of eternity, everyone will know your stories of your most horrible times. No one's going to be like, oh, Noah, I know what happened to you. Like That's not happening for you. You're not having that happen. But yet God does this and shows us. So how do we live today in light of the fact that broken people are not only going to be in our lives, but are often the very means by which God is accomplishing his purposes? And as I look at my life, I can look at many times over the course of history where there just has been deep brokenness experienced by my family as we strive completely imperfectly to serve and honor God. But I mean deep pain, brokenness, hurt, lost relationships. And one of the things that that I get the the joy and and also it's a a somber thing to do is to walk with people is that I get to experience people when they are at their most broken while God is putting them back together and when he has fully redeemed them in that area. And it's absolutely profound and beautiful to watch God work in people. But so often they never get to that redeemed part. 
And we stay stuck in the brokenness. So how do, we, how do we live when we realize that it's not just sometimes that God is going to use broken people, but most often broken people are going to be the means by which he's going to accomplish his purposes in us. And as I look at the painful relationships, when I look in the rearview mirror, I see God doing two things in my life. One, sanctifying me patiently because I am, I am so in need of his sanctification. Faithfully working out his purposes and instilling me in a faith that is stronger than what would have been prior to it. But see, what's, what's interesting is when we think about like the broken people that God is using to accomplish things in your life, I think very often we quickly look at the other broken people in our life and forget that we're the broken per- people. Like you and I are that broken person in someone else's life that God is using for his purposes and his will. And this is a, a hard truth, but it's something we need to understand when we look at the story of God. It was never about having the perfect people work it out. It was about God working it out perfectly. We're not supposed to, to look to Abraham as we must be like him. We're supposed to look to Jesus and say, I want to be like him and recognize that we can't. We won't even come close to being like Jesus apart from Jesus and him giving us his Holy Spirit to dwell in us to do so. See, God, as we watch this story unfold, as we see these things happen, we realize that, that no one is off limits for God's kingdom. This should change the way we interact with this world. When we see deep brokenness, which, by the way, you don't have to turn on the news very long to see deep brokenness. When we see deep brokenness, it shouldn't, it shouldn't cause us to run. It should cause us to bring and usher in the kingdom of God and say the story of God is going to do something here that only he can do for his glory and his glory alone. It's important for us to understand that God is capable of working through every single one of us broken people. See, some of you right now, you've taken yourself out. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm of no use to God. I can't do it. I'm a failure. I, I've sinned too far. I've gone too far. It's, I've hurt too much. And there's just, there's just no way that it can go beyond this. And that's just a complete lie that's, that we don't even see true in Scripture. I mean, could you imagine sitting at a coffee table with David just after the whole Bathsheba thing? I don't picture a man being like, look what I did, this was awesome. Could you imagine, like, asking Abraham, hey, question, so, so how did you do it once, <laughs> but twice? Like, what was that like? What was, what was going through your head the second time? Like, if you're right in that moment, like, could you imagine the guilt or the shame or the, the failure with which they would feel? But God, we, we get to Hebrews 11 and we just have these people as pillars of faith. Why? Because God, God worked out his purposes. God worked out his sanctification. And so often we forget that God is at work in us completing that which he began. And so the very circumstances that you're in, the very difficulty you might be experiencing, and we see this in Joseph's life perfect. I can't wait to get there. I promise we will at some point, okay? We see this perfectly. Joseph spends like 13 years like enslaved and in prison before he has any kind of excitement out of that, like at least 13 years. And the whole time, God is working out his sanctification while accomplishing his purposes to save his seed through Judah. If you were to tell Joseph when he was born that that's what was going to happen, 
probably wouldn't have believed it. Cool, but he probably wouldn't have believed it. See, the same thing's true. If, if God could sit you down and say, hey, hey, Brent, come here, come here. You don't see this right now. You won't, you, there's no way you'll know it. But in about 10 years or in 20 years or in 30 years, you know what is gonna happen to that little faith that I've instilled in you? It's gonna grow and grow and grow. And well, wait, don't, don't get excited about what you're gonna do for you. No, no, no. Remember that faith is, is mine and it's to be used for me. Do, do you believe that? Do you believe that God can work in your life, in, your, in the life of the broken people around you? And if you believe that, then what's holding you back from walking in that? All right, God, have, have your way with me. My marriage stinks, then have your way with me. Don't sit in that. I'm broken over my kids that have wandered. Don't give up on them because God can still work in them. God, I just can't handle seeing all the brokenness in this world. You're right, but you, you, oh child of God, carry a bright light and are a hope that this world so desperately needs. This changes our view when we see the story of God in this way. When we recognize that God isn't just orchestrating his plan, but he's bringing together a family. And if you've spent Thanksgiving with any of your family, you know how dysfunctional that can be at times. So God is at his purpose right now. He is, he's using this model of, of tribal clan. And he's saying, I'm going to bring about my family. And the firstborn who deserves all the rights is actually going to sacrifice himself so that the younger brothers and sisters can come into the kingdom of God and be co-heirs with him. This is what God is doing. He's writing this story. And so whether you are the broken person or someone else is the broken person in your life, the, the outcome and the purpose is the same. But God, God will do amazing things through broken people. He's, he's preserved it for us to show that like ridiculously broken people, like almost like comically, like when we don't have the time and you read it one, one paragraph to another, it's like, how did we get here? It was one paragraph. Like comically how quick it turns in people's lives. But God, Ephesians 2, for you were dead in your trespasses, but God, being rich in his mercy and grace, has saved you. He's doing his purposes. Do you believe that? The band's gonna come up and we're gonna, we're gonna worship. In a second, we'll take communion, so you're welcome to go grab that um, during the song. As we jump into the story of God, as we jump into what God is going to accomplish, my, my encouragement, my plea, my, my hope would be that you recognize that there is no one too far gone for his purposes, that God will accomplish his promises. We've already seen that through the covenants last week, that he will accomplish his purposes in spite of who he uses, sometimes in, in, in conjunction with who he uses, sometimes in spite of who he's using. But either way, he's going to do what he has set out to do in you, in me. It's based on his promise. And like we said last week, if he promised it, he's not broken one yet, so you might as well assume it's going to be true. But don't, don't let yourself be the Pharisee looking down on other people, believing that you have somehow established a better faith than others. You've, you've secured a better position. It's like the, the, the disciples arguing about who gets to sit at the right hand of Jesus while walking with Jesus. How asinine of them to do so. Yet here we are sometimes doing the very same thing, thinking ourselves better than the people God used here when realistically 
if they were writing a book about us, we'd be pretty embarrassed by it too. But God, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for, thank you for showing us that you can work out your promises and your purposes through disgustingly broken people, um, broken systems, broken structures, um, where, where all hope may seem to be lost. God, we thank you, we thank you, we thank you that you um, have over and over again shown us that you are still in control, that your plans will not be thwarted, that you will not be stopped. God, for the individuals that are here today, as we, as we wrestle maybe with our own brokenness, as there's maybe some in here that have, um, have caused deep hurt in others because of their own brokenness, their own sinfulness, their own struggles, Lord, I pray that they would rest in the grace that comes from you and only you through Jesus Christ and his completed work on the cross, God, his death, burial, and resurrection. Father, for those that are here today that are experiencing deep hurt from the brokenness or the sinfulness of others, I pray that you would help them to see that you still are in control, that you still will accomplish your, pro- your purposes through absolutely horrific things in miraculous ways that make no sense to us, God. We know that you have um, committed to finish that which you've begun in our hearts, and God, we look forward to seeing how you do that for your glory and your glory alone. But as a church, God, I pray, I pray that we would, not, um, we would not lose sight of your story that's being written. We would not lose sight of the fact that we have a part in your story, that, that none of us is, is left out because of the brokenness that, is, that has happened in our life, because you can still do mighty things in and through us in spite of our own brokenness, Lord. I pray that as we, as we move forward in life, as we come into this new season of summer, God, I pray that our lives would not, um, our lives and our work and what you're doing in us would not be put on hold to accomplish our own purposes, but instead would be fully surrendered to you to accomplish that which you began in us. We praise you for all you're doing. We praise you for the way with which you have use broken structures and broken people and broken cultures to bring about your purposes so that when we, a broken people who live in a broken structure and a broken culture, can rest in the promise that you will continue to work out your, pur- your purposes. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit revolution22.org or on the Church Center app. We encourage you not to neglect meeting together as believers, and may you continue to love God and love others.